look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the mechanisms the investment industry has in place to protect you. We're going to learn how the CPP actually works. You might be surprised about that. We get uh, some tips on managing cash flow in retirement with the Cash Flow Cookbook. But first, we want to find out whether a housing shortage will affect you in retirement. You know the the conversation about affordability about long-term care, about seniors' homes. These are the things that are pressing, especially as we have an aging demographic here in Canada. Uh, and I want to focus on Alberta as well. Um, this is a concern of ours, as clients of ours, as uh, and listeners of this show know that uh, you know when we get older, we want to make sure that we've got those services, more important that it's affordable and they're available. So let's talk about what's out there with you know set the, within the next seven years, the national average for seniors home rents could reach about four thousand dollars a month is what we've been told. So let's have more discussion about this. We have Lauren Tamlin Watts. She's national director of law, policy and research at the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, known as CARP. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's start talking about uh, the the article that was recently published, uh, uh, noticing that uh, we could have uh, rents for for seniors' homes going up as high as four thousand um, dollars. What's the outlook for people who may want to move into some sort of seniors' residence? It's really important to plan ahead because what we see is that residences that offer some type of supportive care, whether that be meds, help, or dining, and so on we're really running into a shortage of them. And part of the reason we're running into that shortage is because we have a shortage of long-term care home beds. And so what happens is the pressure moves downward. So we're getting more and more pushed into that middle option of what we call retirement homes or assisted living houses. Okay, so there's there's less availability because we, we need more supply. Is there incentives out there or any kind of program out there to build uh, more of these homes? It kind of depends where you are in the country. Some local initiatives or municipalities are encouraging building in that area, um, and some really haven't yet kind of got their heads around the real need for different kinds of affordable housing for people who also need support. So the answer to that question is, depends what your postal code is. Okay. So what are the prices like are in Alberta, for example? Well, you know, uh, the numbers that you heard are, are not surprising to me in any way. I mean, I think if you're going to look to see, you'll see at the very, very low end, about, say, two-ish thousand dollars. That's very low end. And it is not difficult to find $12,000 a month. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have a really hard time affording that. And one of the things that you need to look at is when they're talking about those dollars, are that, is that the total dollars for the month, or is that just the rent component? Because very often, you may have, for instance, something three or $4,000, but if you look at it, on top of that, you're being charged for services. And so you have to be a very aware person when you're looking at what's available to get a sense of what the total dollar value of, of what's happening in that monthly 
component. So you mentioned earlier about you need to plan ahead. Not too many people do this. Not too many people start to explore that option. And some are are put in that option without advance notice for themselves through medical reasons or what have you. Um, How does someone plan ahead? What should they be doing to plan ahead? The first thing they should be doing is looking where they live now. Look around. Is it accessible? Are there things that you could do in your own home now that means that you may not have to move in to another type of residence? So can you take out walls or widen things? Can you make bathrooms more accessible? So that's kind of at the first end. Can you make the place that you are better so you don't have to move? Some people will want to move because what we know is that people can get very lonely as they age and having a greater community as well as support services can be both nice as well as medically necessary. So at that point, you know, I I think it's really important that when we think about planning ahead, you have a, a real thought about how long you'll live. You know, when you go to financial planners and you're putting away money for retirement, they routinely use numbers like 80 or 85. But what we know is the Canadian population is now routinely living well into their mid-80s and into their 90s and over 100. So part of planning ahead is having a look at what level you expect for your money to stretch to. So think about putting money aside, not just for your retirement, but for your quality of life and your living expenses. I think you raise a good point there, Laura. One thing that we do on our team for our clients, we kind of estimate what those uh, costs are. So we do a full health plan with our clients to understand um, what are some of their concerns, what their doctors are saying could be a high probability of issues and risks down the road. We start to quantify what those those risks could mean in in regards to long-term care or home care. And then what are what what do we do to plan for that in the overall strategy? So I think I'm I'm very happy to hear that you're you're talking about not just wait till later, figure it out sooner uh, and and go from there. I kind of want to switch gears as well. uh, Laura, there's going to be a lot of people who are looking for retirement homes, for looking long-term care facilities, and, and unfortunately, because of the lack of availability at this point in time, what are your options if you can't find a spot? So you, we talk about the health and housing continuum, everything from living in your own home and getting home care support to kind of moving into that retirement home, which is usually some type of a private pay option with extra services, some Some places have government subsidies for that, like British Columbia and and some in Alberta as well. Uh, Some don't in Ontario, for instance. It's entirely private pay. Or then you're moving into long-term care. So what I would suggest to folks is think about every kind of creative option along that line. Is there maybe not a house that you live in right now, but one that's close to your neighborhood that's more easily accessible on transit, that can get you where you need to go, but is maybe a bungalow. Is there an option if you decide that you want to co-live with family or friends, can you divide up your house and use part of a home as an accessible suite uh, and then rent out the other part of your home so you're earning money on the rest of it, but you're living in an accessible suite? So really think about what you have now and how you can maximize it. When you're looking at moving into a retirement home, you know, think through what it is that you want. Are you looking to be close to family and friends? If so, you may decide that actually moving to a different place is where you want to go, which is often something people don't think about. You may not decide that you want to stay there uh, because that's a community that you've long lived to. The people may be more important. So think about what's most important to you and then look in those areas. 
We see people also looking to go to other jurisdictions because they think that it's less expensive and the quality of life is good. Lots of folks in Alberta came from the Maritimes, and what we see is something called east-sizing, where people are retiring in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and, and so forth, and other areas here, and, and Newfoundland as well, where cost of living is much less expensive and they can get maybe more accessible services and, and so on. If you'd like to stay close to home, that's great. Look now and maybe put your name down on the list earlier than later. Can I ask one question before we have to go for break? Um, is there somebody or a company or companies out there that help families navigate this whole system? Because I think it's it's overwhelming. Sometimes people are ill-equipped with information. Um, you open up the Internet and you start Googling. There's a lot of stuff that can come your way. Um, are there companies out there that actually help individuals figure this all this, all this stuff out? And this is a terrific question. More and more we're seeing usually smaller organizations provide kind of a concierge-based service for families, and I think it's money well spent. So I was uh, just working with a company here in Ontario called Healthcare Sisters, and the type of work that they do is they help to either sell the house or put your uh, things up for sale, help to organize moving. They know where the long-term care facilities are or the retirement homes and have existing relationships. They can help to navigate the medical, legal, and financial aspects, and they can work with your financial planner. So we are seeing more of these. They exist more in the United States. But they are coming up now in Canada. And I think that for some families, it's money well spent. Thank you very much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. This is Laura Tamlin-Watts, National Director of Law, Policy and Research. And before we finish off this segment, let's, um, let's invite everybody out to our upcoming seminar. It's taking place 7 o'clock on Tuesday, July 24th. We're going up north this time. We're at the Crowfoot Co-op wine, spirits, and beer. If you want to join us for that, you need to give us a call at 966-8400 and register your seat or seats. We'd love to see you there. Join us after the break. We're going to talk about how the investment industry has built programs to protect you. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with David Faisal. Um, you know, Faisal, we've got uh, an industry, uh, sorry, a population, a demographic that is aging. Um, and with age, uh, sometimes comes uh, health concerns. And I can speak personally. My family's been touched by this. It's sometimes those health concerns involve uh, things like dementia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these have implications on, uh, on our industry and how we uh, handle people who might be facing those kinds of challenges to keep it in their best interest and to protect people from those who might want to take advantage of that. That's right. Right? And so it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And to help understand a little bit about um, the industry and some of the things we're thinking about, where we're going to try to address some of these concerns, we've got Michelle Alexander joining us today. She's the Vice President of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. Michelle, thanks for taking some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this, this demographic shift that's happening. We're all aware that uh, as a population, uh, we've got the baby boom generation getting older, moving into retirement. Uh, and as we get older, as I said uh, at the outset, there are some challenges that, that may come with that. So tell us a little bit about what protections are currently in place for uh, you know, uh, our older loved ones or uh, you know, your own investment accounts if you're an older person. Um, and I would also want to emphasize uh, people talk about this wave of baby boomers 
starting to enter retirement. But I think the, the fact is the wave is already here. Right. Uh, they're already in retirement. We're seeing this more and more. Um, our um, member firms of the Investment Industry Association of Canada have been looking at this issue for quite some time. Um, and we're all on the same page in terms of wanting to make sure uh, seniors are adequately protected. And um, back in 2014, we uh, produced uh, a guidance report that uh, was sort of a rundown of the best practices that investment dealer firms and advisors are currently using when working with senior clients. And it covered a lot of areas in terms of training of advisors, how you um, identify signs of diminished capacity and elder abuse, ways that firms should um, look at their supervisory and compliance structures to meet the changing needs of senior investors. So, for example, that would mean looking at um, the suitability of products for seniors as part of a firm's overall product due diligence and new product approval process. Right. We're looking at a new product. The firm is thinking of introducing how, how does that help seniors and is it is it a good investment for seniors? And also in terms of um, advertising and marketing to seniors, uh, in, uh, internal processes for escalating issues. So uh, firms have been looking at this for a long time, but um, while that uh, report and guidance was very helpful, and we've also mentioned it to um, regular people out there who could be, look at this report in terms of things that they should be considering for themselves. Is their firm and advisor looking at these issues? Um, and also in terms of uh, the families of senior clients, how are firms making sure that their parents and other loved ones are adequately protected? Mm -hmm. But we realized, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I'm just saying yes, I, I'm following along. I, I think it's fascinating that people understand that this process has been under. So, so please finish your thought. Um, so, and while that was um, some uh, good first steps, firms are hungry for more ways that they can help their, their clients, um, and some seniors are demanding it as well. Uh, so one thing that we've been looking at within the industry, and we've recently sort of joined forces um, in Ontario at least, the Ontario Securities Commission recently issued a senior strategy, and it aligned a lot with the work that the IAC was doing internally with our private client committee. Um, and that was looking at uh, a new initiative that does exist currently in the United States of a trusted contact person. Right. Um, and that would be uh, a way for firms to make sure that when they open an account, and it doesn't just apply to seniors, it would apply to anyone. Mm -hmm. You open an account, and is there, um, you ask the client, and it's their choice if they choose not to provide it, that's completely their prerogative, to put down a person uh, as their trusted contact person that the firm could contact in case of issues of diminished capacity, of potential suspicion, of elder abuse, yep. um, and that person wouldn't have any authority over the account. So, you know, for example, uh, uh, parents, uh, the, you know, widowed mother lives in Calgary, no children are around, daughter lives in Toronto. The advisor is starting to see some issues with their client. She seems to be a little confused, sometimes seems unkept, is making strange requests regarding her account. So that way the advisor would be able to pick up the phone and call the daughter in Toronto and say, 
you may want to check in with your mother. There's some things going on, and we're a little bit unsure of whether, you know, uh, everything is all right. Can you, can you just touch base with her? And that's really sort of the main point. It's not for that daughter to take over the account or make any decisions, but just to be able for the advisor to know that there's somebody who can look out for their, for their client. Really, more importantly, all clients, especially seniors, should make sure they have a power of attorney for property in place. Um, the fact is that a lot don't, um, and so this trusted contact person type of initiative would at least be a more less legal um, authority, but just a way to make sure that advisors have some way of making sure their clients are okay. So, so Michelle, how do you, what would you recommend or provide some tips for people to kind of go through the process of who should that person or that contact person be? Because in your example, you picked, you know, they have, they're a widow and they have a they have a daughter out of the city or out of the province, and that I can see that happening. What other ways or what kind of process should a person be looking at to have this type of uh, of selection made, which could be completely different than, for example, a power of attorney mm-hmm. or an executor yeah. in your will? I mean, it it really can be anyone in in the United States where they have this as a new requirement as of February first. Uh, it's really just someone over the age of eighteen uh, with you know mental facilities in place, etc. But it, I mean, it should be someone the person trusts. the The problem is, unfortunately, is when you're looking at elder abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it sometimes. I have a little pie chart in front of me that shows that um, one study showed that it was 40, the majority of those who abuse the elderly are um, adult children comprise 40% of that. Um, spouses are 15%. So unfortunately, it's those nearest and dearest who sometimes are can be the problem, but that's not that's not the case, obviously, for the majority of people. Um, so it can be a, uh, a child. It can be. Um, it, it cannot be the financial advisor. That is um, definitely something that shouldn't occur. Um, but a relative, a sibling, um, even a friend, um, or anyone else, really, who that um, client trusts that can and, and is close enough to that person that they can make sure that they're uh, checking in with them and making right. sure things are okay. So let's say you do get appointed by, as a trusted contact person, and then the advisor calls you up and says, okay, we've, we've got some concerns. How, what do you need to do as that trusted person? Um, there would be no requirements, and I, I think for some firms, it makes them a little nervous that a trusted contact person um, has no authority or no requirements placed upon them. Um, But this is really just a first line of defense. If you're getting to the point of already having to contact a trusted contact person, that means the advisors had some issues. They're not just going to pick up the phone the first time they can't reach their client. So it's, it's at that point where they're asking the trusted contact person to check in with the client. Are they okay? Have a you know, go in and have, sit down with them if there's concerns about diminished capacity. Call their lawyer. Is there a power of attorney already in place that that person knows about? Get that person involved. Get someone else involved um, and meet with the client to make sure that, you know, issues of abuse or diminished capacity, are they in fact present or not? And then the next question is what next steps may need to occur at that point. 
And so just for some of the people out there who are thinking, I have a living will or a personal care directive, I've selected a person that I trust to handle my health care, my, myself in the event, um, why not just go to them? Why, why are we picking potentially somebody different? Well, um, I should mention that there are two different, legally, there's a power of attorney for property and a power of attorney for health. Correct. Those are completely separate documents, uh, legal powers of attorney. So a living will, will for health is, is, it could be the same person that the person, the client appoints, but under law already, those are two different types of documents with right. um, potentially different individuals. Um, and it's really making sure that the advisor knows who that person is. It's, you know, the client may think that the advisor has that information. If we make it a requirement, a regulatory requirement, that the advisor at least has to ask the question, then it prompts the advisor and the client to have that important conversation of uh, powers of attorney, what to ha- what's to happen in the future, who are the right people to contact. Because as we all know, nobody wants to talk about those types of uncomfortable issues. Yeah. Clients sometimes push back. Advisors sometimes feel awkward raising the issue of diminished capacity with their client. But if you have those conversations early, and again, we're talking about a trusted contact person requirement, not just for, say, over the age of 60 or 65, but for every client, because it happens at some point, could happen to all of us at some point. So the question is, why wait till 60? Why not do it when you're 40 or 30 and, and first uh, meeting with your advisor? And it's up to the advisor to ask those questions as well, as difficult as they may be, because um, for advisors as well, to get into an issue after the fact of a dispute or a complaint regarding, uh, you know, someone, a family member saying, you followed my mother's instructions and now she's depleted her assets, um, that's not a position any advisor wants to be put in later on. Very good. Michelle, we have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for your insight. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. We've been joined by Michelle Alexander, Vice President of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. We're going to have some of that conversation on our upcoming seminar. And that's going to take place on Tuesday, July the 24th. Back to the Tuesday, uh, July 24th, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine Spirits Beer. We look forward to seeing you there. To register, you're going to have to give us a call at 966-8400, or you can go to pkag.ca and register online. Now, stay, uh, stay tuned. After the break, we're going to talk about how the CPP actually works. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. You know, Faisal, we get lots of questions about, um, about the CPP. Is it funded? How does it work? How much am I going to get? When should I take it? Yeah. Why I think the Canadian pension plan is giving poor returns to the pensioner, but the investments are doing well. (laughs) And so we can talk about that. Okay. And to help us understand that a little bit, uh, Charles Lamam is going to join us. He's a director of fiscal studies at the Frazier Institute. Charles, uh, thank you for taking some time with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. I'm not sure we can do justice to the entire CPP and (laughs) structure and how it works in 10 minutes, but... I do want to maybe get down to brass tacks pretty quick, and Mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about how the Canada pension um, payments actually work. Maybe you can shed some light on uh, on that and uh, the issue that uh, Faisal had raised. Okay, so let's try to avoid the fact that the Canada Pension Plan is being changed in starting next year over the next seven years. So let's ignore that extra uh, challenge. Basically, 
all Canadian workers, whether you're self-employed or employed by somebody, you're, you're making payments uh, into this program, and it's money coming off of your paycheck. If you're mm-hmm. if you're providing all the contributions that you can, you're putting in about five thousand dollars each year into this program. The the way that the benefits work is that they're calculated on how many years you've you've contributed, how much your annual contribute contributions are, and depend it depends on the age that you retire at. So you can get uh, CPP benefits early on, but that you they come at a reduced rate, and they're supposed to replace about 25% of the average industrial wage, and so that's about $55,000 currently. So there's you know the reason for why we wrote our, our recent piece that was in the Financial Post is that there is a lot of misunderstanding about how the program works, but in particular there's a big gap in knowledge uh, between what you as an individual CPP contributor get uh, in in retirement, like what the rate of return is on your contributions versus what the CPP IB, which is the entity that invests excess CPP contributions each year, and what they're generating in terms of returns. Those two things are very different and oftentimes they get conflated. And I think the the, the CEO of this uh, investment board really added to some confusion, and we tried to clarify that. Um, lots, lots to talk about. I'll, I'll leave it there and let you guys uh, guide me as to where you want to go. Well, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about then. Um, it, so it's formula based, and I think people need to understand that. Yes. If uh, if the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board did a twenty percent rate of return, does that mean that a pensioner gets more no. money? Does it mean? You know that. How does it impact? Yeah, yeah. What's yeah, the so, impact to the average Canadian then? Right. So, the basically, you're if you're someone born after 1970, uh, you're getting about two point three, two and a half percent returns uh, by the time you retire on what you've contributed over your working life. So, Charles, let's uh, just go over that really, so people yeah. can understand that people on average are putting five thousand dollars a year in Canadian pension plan. Currently, and it's and it's going up. It will yeah. continue to go up, but there's been, and there's been a, a pretty significant expansion that starts next year, right, yeah. and it goes up each year because the amount that you contribute each year is based on an average industrial wage, and that's going up. So, let's say by the time you're uh, in 2025, you could be making well over six thousand dollars in annual contributions, depending on what your income level is. Right. So but the yes, formula sir. that you went through to explain that 2.3 percent rate of return was you calculated how much a person has contributed into right. the pension plan, and then they look at what's the growth rate that they had in that pension plan that they on their contributions, and then how much are they getting out of it? Is that a fair assessment to say? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a lot more complicated, but but basically, what you when we're trying to determine what the annual rate of return is, you're just trying to get a sense on if you put in some amount of money each and every year, what do you get back in terms of that in, in terms of return, and and we're calculating that for the CPP program in particular. It's complicated by many factors, but on average, you're getting anywhere between 2.3 and 2.5 percent by the time you retire, and so when you hear things um, in the news about the CPPIB, which is the uh, the entity that invests excess CPP contributions, getting double-digit annual rates of return, 11, 12%, you're thinking, okay, well, that means that I must be getting pretty good returns on my 
CPP contributions. That is not the case, and that's what people get confused by a lot. How this fund does has no direct impact whatsoever on how you do as an individual Canadian. Let, maybe, maybe let's talk a little bit about CPPIB. This is, you know, back in, in the 1990s, CPP was not a sustainable program. You know, right. people called it a Ponzi scheme. They were worried about not having CPP benefits when they retire. So what happened was the government created uh, reforms, many of which, uh, one of which was to raise the contributions, the amount that people contribute to about 10% of their uh, of their insurable earnings from about 5%. So a doubling of how much you had to contribute. And that generated an extra amount of money each and every year over and above what the CPP would pay out for benefits to Canadians. So let's say that your all the revenues that you get from the, the payroll tax generated, say, $10 billion, um, but then they were paying out about $8 billion each year to, to current retirees. So the extra money the $2 billion was being put into this entity called CPPIB, and they were tasked with investing that extra money that, that Canadians put into CPP to generate returns to help fund the program into the future. So, Charles, so, how, does that, how does that differ from a regular pension plan that a company does? Well, the, the, the company's pension plan is going to be 100% based on their contributions. We still have a system today, and we will in the future, whereby current contributors are funding current retirees. So there's still this redistribution in, in, a, in your own private plans. The money that you set aside each and every year goes to fund your retirement when, when, when you retire. But right, in, right now in Canada, there's a combination of money coming from this fund as well as from current working Canadians. And so this, this entity, CPPIB, has in recent years performed well. It has generated good returns on these contributions. Um, and that's really the, the source of the confusion. People are, are, are conflating how well uh, that fund is doing with how well they will do individually through the CPP. And it's giving rise to, you know, factually incorrect statements about the CPP providing a great deal to Canadians. It's actually Correct. not a very strong investment for, for, for virtually anybody because you can do much better than between 2.3-2.5% investing that five six thousand $6,000 each year in a different investment vehicle. And not only is the rate that you get low, but there's a whole set of restrictions around the CPP. Correct. Unlike the unlike your private, say your RSP, if you ever if you're a young person, you're contributing to to your RSP, you can pull out up to twenty five thousand dollars to help uh, fund a, a down payment on your first home, which is you know very nice if you're a young person in in one of these high priced housing markets in Canada. You don't have that option. You can't pull out your CPP money. You can't pass it on fully if you die early. If you're if you're if you end up dying when you're relatively young. You, you, you virtually lose all the money that you've contributed um, to the CPP over many years, and there's just there's no there's no ability to pull out any money for any emergency that that uh, that you may need the money for if you lose your job. Yeah. So there's a lot of restrictions around the CPP beyond the simple fact that it, it's not giving individual Canadians a very high rate of return. So Charles, we have got about less than thirty seconds to go. Would yep. it be um, in the Fraser Institute's recommendation to tell the government to stop? 
increasing the contributions and use this excess returns that the investment board is to to help fund the pension plan or should they do something different because if they're making good returns and i'm still paying into the cpp to cover existing uh pensioners requirements why not just use the money that we've made in the board to pay off the uh to pay these pensioners so that i don't have to put or so to much reduce- out of my paycheck or to reduce the contribution rate. Correct. But it's not it's not that easy, right? So in order for CPP to just to sustain itself, like this this entire program, the the investment board needs to generate a, a rate of return of 4% just to sustain the program. Fortunately, they're doing better than that. But just to make the program sustainable, they have to do 4%, which is very interesting when you think about it. The investment board generates has to generate at least 4%, but you as an individual Canadian get gets between 2 you know, two and 2.5%. Two and it's very perverse, and I don't think anybody would sign up for a, to, to a fund whereby the fund is doing uh, almost double uh, what the individual is doing. So there's, so my 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 point in in, in writing about this, and we've written a, a, and done a ton of research on it, is really just to explain to Canadians it's a very complicated subject. There's a lot of misperception and misunderstanding, and and right now it's all it's made all the more important because this program that we have is being expanded. So starting next year, there's going to be more money being put, you know, taken off your paycheck to to be put into CPP, and that will gradually occur up until 2025. So we're going to be putting more money into this program. It's we know that it's not generating uh, strong returns, and that means necessarily that Canadians are going to save less in their private uh, modes. They're not going to. I mean, they're just yeah. not going to have the extra money to to continue doing the same uh, before uh, as they did before the, the 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 expansion happens. And we're going to lose out now on a lot of the choice and flexibility that we have in these private modes, whether it's RSPs, TFSAs, as more money goes into a program that's not really generating great returns for uh, for Canadians. We've got to leave it there, Charles. Thank you very much for your insights today. Great. Thanks a lot. been joined by Charles Lamam, Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute. Yeah, because you're building your own pension when you transition to yep. retirement. When you're living in retirement, you're living off that pension, all that savings of money that you've had over the years. We're going to talk about the biggest risks about that and how do you receive the income for life. And Faisal, we're going to do all of that on a, at our upcoming seminar on Tuesday, July the 24th. 7 o'clock, 7, 8 o'clock at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine Spirits Beer. Give us a call to register for your Cedar Seats. You need to reach us at 966-8400. That's 403-966-8400. Or go to pkag.ca and you can register online. Stick around after the break. We'll talk about an interesting way of looking at your cash flow in retirement with the author of the Cash Flow Cookbook. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR. And more than money. Cash flow cookbook recipes mm-hmm. for everything about money. I'll have you know that I'm a very good baker because I can follow a recipe. I like that. No, because you go to the bakery and you ask them to bake it for you and you call it your own. You liar. <laughs> Gordon Stein's joining us today, Toronto author of Cash Flow Cookbook. Gordon, welcome to the show. Hey, great. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Um, love the title, as you've no, go- no doubt gathered from the introduction here. Let's talk a little bit about what the cash flow, um, you know, what the cash flow cookbook is. Why'd you write it? Well, you know what? I guess a couple things. One is when you read all the stats about Canadians and their finances, as a country, we need a lot of help. So very few people taking advantage of registered education savings programs, people often underprepared for retirement in terms of their savings, and just day-to-day money management, really common topic. People need a lot of help. 
And uh, the book actually got started when a friend of mine was in my car and he looked at a uh, gas receipt for a car wash yeah. and said, geez, why would you pay money for a car wash? And uh, and so then he went on to explain he uses, you know, the SO Extra card and the, the Speed Pass and so on and so forth. So I started doing that, hadn't paid for a car wash in about three years. So I thought, geez, you know, that's saving $25 a month. And I thought that was so slick, it took me 10 minutes. And then I switched my home alarm monitoring to the uh, discount home alarm monitoring. That was another $25, and there was $50. I thought, I wonder what else there is. So that led to a two-year journey of researching the best personal finance hacks, and it just fit the format of a cookbook. That's how it got started. Well, I think that's, uh, I think that's an interesting way to approach it. Now, uh, just before we get started here, if somebody wants to get a hold of uh, the book, it's called Cashflow yeah. Cookbook. How do they do that? Right. Um, you can go to cashflowcookbook.com, uh, order it directly, and there's all kinds of blog posts and other information on there. Uh, and it's also available as both a Kindle book and a paperback on Amazon. All right, so tempt us with some of these delicious recipes of yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, the first one we started off was this crazy one about uh, car washes, so there's $25 a month. The recipes vary in Cashflow Cookbook from $25 a month up to things that are $1,000 uh, a month or more. And some of them were interesting ones that people often overlook. And the idea is they're all easy to implement, uh, not a lot of work, but big uh, savings. So one example that was quite interesting in the research is people's use of these storage lockers. So people are paying anywhere from $150 up to $450 or more a month. <clears throat> and when you do a bit of audit of what people are storing, often it's things that wouldn't even pay one month's worth of rent on it and they move out of a house to an apartment or there's a divorce or there's some sort of a change and they store away all their furniture because it doesn't work in the new house, well, it's probably not going to work in the house after that either. Um, so in most of those cases, they'd be far smarter to sell off the goods for whatever they can get uh, and save a monthly recurring charge at a storage locker. So that's another example of something people can look at. Um, another one that's quite common is uh, mortgage life insurance. So, you know, getting a house and the banker will typically say, geez, you know, what if something happens to you, your loved one's going to want to keep paying the mortgage, we should offer some protection there. And people go, of course. And they're right, they are smart to protect it, but typically not with bank-offered mortgage life insurance. It tends to be significantly more expensive than just getting some term insurance from another provider. So a typical savings there could be 50, 60, or more dollars a month, and you're getting better coverage, which doesn't decline as you pay off the mortgage. So those are examples of what's in there. The idea is it's written in six sections, so food and drink, household, lifestyle, and financial, etc. And you just go through, and if one isn't applicable, no problem, just like a recipe book, you go to the next recipe. But it's a great check to make sure that you've really optimized all of your finances. So, Gordon, which one was the one that surprised you the most? Like the, the savings, you're like, I, I'm surprised I could actually save by taking on this recipe? Um, I would say in the research, the one that really surprised me, I hadn't even thought of, is clothing costs. And one of the stats that you see repeatedly when you do a bit of digging on this is that people only ever wear 20% of the clothing that they buy. <laughs> and clothing tends to take up 6% of the average uh, Canadian household budget. So if you imagine a typical household income, that's about $5,000 a year. So if you're buying $5,000 a year of clothing every year and only wearing 20% of it, that means 80% of that $5,000 or $4,000 is going to end up on a street sale. <laughs> so all that money is going. What tends to happen is people say, oh, my goodness, this thing's on sale. What a great deal. They don't take the time to try it on or it's a little big or a little small. But, hey, well, look at this great deal. Comes home, lands in their closet. Every time you go in the closet, you always look for the thing that you like the most. 
you don't look for the second or third string clothing. And then a couple of years later, you say, let's sell it in the yard sale for five cents on the dollar. So that was one that was pretty surprising. Another one, the book also has some one-time uh, savings ideas. Another one that uh, I actually went through myself is one of our kids was a great piano player. So, you know, of course, you got to get them a real piano, not just a little keyboard. Mm-hmm. So that was a three or $4,000 expenditure. If you go um, on Kijiji toward the end of every month, you'll see dozens of pianos for free. And most of them are as nice or nicer as the one that we paid a few thousand dollars for. And people don't realize that because musical instruments is a great thing to buy used because people try it. Everyone thinks they're going to be Eddie Van Halen, and it's much harder than it looks. So <laughs> guitars, guitars, pianos, and pianos are big, and they've got to be gone by the end of the month when you need to move. So you have a very motivated uh, seller, and typically the price is free, for beautiful multi-thousand-dollar pianos. So those are a couple of cash flow cookbook uh, ideas that surprised me. Okay, so I got I got to tell you, um, my fiance hates you because <laughs> I love your comment about the clothing. I got to go back to that one. I'm just yep. wondering what happens when she divorces me when I pay this clip for her on the you know on uh, on Sunday or I get him to or I get her to tune in and she says, "Oh no, Dave, we ain't gonna do that." <laughs> I I, lo- I love well, the idea of it, and it's probably very true that we uh, you know in that particular case. Uh, have a lot of extra spending. Well, for sure. Well, we all do it. I mean, if you have a you have a coat drive at your company, which is a great charity idea, but I'm always amazed at the number of coats you pull out of the closet. Most of them you haven't even seen in years, right? Yeah, yeah. So paying a little bit more attention and, and making some better decisions up front is great in the clothing. So one more for your next book, my friend. Uh, your next recipe you can put on your second book would be Do Not Go for Dinner with Dave Popwich. <laughs> He always forgets his wallet, so you end up paying for the whole check. I get to write the chapter. Yeah, and then he keeps the receipt and somehow ends up on his tax filing. So just be aware of that. Put that on your on your next book. But I want to thank you, you know, for joining us today. It's been a great great pieces of ideas and, 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 and some, some research there. Fantastic. Yeah, great. So check have, have your listeners check out cashflowcookbook.com. Lots more recipes on there, lots more blog posts and ideas. Lots of sensible stuff. Thanks a lot for joining us, Gordon. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Gordon Stein, Toronto author of Cashflow Cookbook. We're talking about that at our seminar on uh, Tuesday, July 24th. That's the next one. 7 o'clock, 7, 8 o'clock is your commitment. If you want to join us, it's going to be at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine Spirits Beer. Um, You can register two ways. You can give us a call, 403-966-8400, or you can go to pkag.ca and register online. Either way, we look forward to seeing you there and having that conversation. We're going to wrap up another show here, but before we do that, can I remind you that if you're interested in any of the past segments, today's or previous shows, you can access those on morethanmoneyradio.com, or you can have them delivered directly to you by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money. Have a great weekend. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.